you're listening to a message from Kaleo Phoenix, a church plant in downtown Phoenix that creates space for people to practice the ways of Jesus together. Amen. Good evening, Kaleo. Good to see you all. Uh, good to pass some peace for a little bit as well. Uh, I'm excited to try something a little different this evening, which if you've ever been around Kaleo comes as no surprise, but if you haven't, uh, we do things differently from time to time, and so it'll be a, a mixture of sermon meets guided practice, um, and I'll, I'll walk you through that as we go. Our passage for this evening is, is a well-known one, even if you don't have a history as an avid Bible reader. Uh, its fame is in the title given to this passage, which is Jesus Feeds the 5,000. So maybe you've heard of that, right? Jesus fed a bunch of people with some bread and some fish. It already sounds like it's probably a miracle of some sort, right, if there's that many people who've been fed by Jesus. However, there's a theme hidden beneath the surface of this passage that I'd like for us to explore this evening. And I'd like our exploration to include kind of these rhythms of self-reflection and prayer. And so I'll walk us through that. But to cut to the chase on all of this, this hidden theme is fitting uh, for this season that we find ourselves in in the church calendar. It's called ordinary time. And the way I see it is this passage is filled with ordinary people experiencing ordinary things. But we don't think of it like that when we just read the title that Jesus feeds 5,000 people. So if you're anything like me in that sense, I think we have this tendency to overlook the ordinariness when we're so busy emphasizing the climax of this miraculous feeding. So I'm going to try to get us to pay attention to that as we go. I'll come, come to focus here in a little bit. I'm going to begin, though, by reading the passage so you have some context for what's going on. Then I'm going to pray, and then we're going to commence this guided little ordinary journey with Jesus we'll be on. Sound good? Okay. I just assume that sounds good. Right? Yeah, okay. And I mean, if it didn't, I'm not even sure what we would do. No one's ever said that does not sound good. And then I changed it, you know. All right, anyway, here we go. Matthew 14, 13 through 21. As soon as Jesus heard the news, he left in a boat to a remote area to be alone. But the crowds heard where he was headed and followed on foot from many towns. Jesus saw the huge crowd as he stepped from the boat, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. That evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place, and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, That isn't necessary. You feed them. But we have only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here he said. Then he told the people to sit down on the grass. Jesus took the five loaves and the two fish, looked up toward heaven, and blessed them. Then, breaking the loaves into pieces, he gave the bread to the disciples who distributed it to the people. They all ate as much as they wanted, and afterward, the disciples picked up 12 baskets of leftovers. About 5,000 men were fed that day in addition to all the women and children. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, again, we just acknowledge that you are a God who is with us. We thank you that you are a God who meets us here 
that you're not a God who requires us to do something or act in a certain way or sing a song a certain way for you to meet us, that you're already here present among us, God. And so I pray that you'd give us uh, just an ability to receive that goodness today. I pray that you'd teach us, that you'd reveal yourself to us, that you'd help us follow your son, Jesus, that you'd help us remember that we are loved, that you'd help us to love others as well. And I pray, Lord, too, for myself as I preach, I pray that I would not say things that aren't for you or from you and that everything that would come out of my mouth would honor you. If it doesn't, I pray that we would forget it. We love you, Lord. Thank you for this time together. In your name we pray. Amen. 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 All right, before we self-reflect our way through the passage, I want us to pay specific attention to one detail. This whole episode takes place in the remote, wide-open wilderness. So what you get to do for the next, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes or so is imagine yourself lakeside. Does that sound nice right now? Yeah, all right? So wide open skies, sitting by the lake in the grass, okay? There we are. Feel good? Okay, first, though, I want to begin with a question for us. What is this news that sent Jesus across the lake? Did you catch that, right? The, the very first verse of this what's called a pericope, which is the section of scripture, says, as soon as Jesus heard the news, does anybody know what the news is? No? I mean, you could look in your Bible and you'd find it, but if you're not looking in your Bible, you're like, I don't actually know the news. I know the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000, but how the heck did he end up over there? It's actually pretty important news Jesus' friend and cousin, John the Baptist, had just had his head cut off, put on a platter, passed along to a young girl who gave it to her mother. He's just found out that's what's happened to his friend and cousin, John the Baptist. Kind of puts this whole thing in a different light, doesn't it? So, with that in mind... As soon as Jesus heard that news, he left in a boat to a remote area to be alone. But the crowds heard where he was headed and followed on foot from many towns. Jesus saw the huge crowd as he stepped from the boat and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Like, are you catching what's happening, right? Jesus is floating around the lake grieving the unjust, murderous death of his friend and cousin, John the Baptist, who had been imprisoned, and they killed him. He just wants to be alone, the passage says. To cry, to pray, to think of all the stories of John's life, all of the things they've shared together, all of the things John stood for, All of the ways in which John announced that Jesus would come and be this one who would tell everybody about the way God intended everything to be. And for every amount of time he had, he was on the lake. That's the only time he got. He got to the shore, and there was a crowd of people there waiting for him. 
But I think what's so interesting about that is that this crowd of people, they don't know what's going on beneath the surface of Jesus. Like there might be some rumblings, there might be some idea, but at this point in time, these crowds don't actually like know Jesus. They just hear of this prophet who's healing and announcing a new way of being in the world. They're intrigued by the, what he's up to and the, the reality of what he's accomplishing with people who've been sick or oppressed or pushed aside. These people, too, want healing and hope, direction and dedication. They're looking for something. And so here they are on the other side of the lake where they meet this grieving Jesus. But they don't know that's happening. So two things here, zooming in on the theme of ordinary. Jesus is grieving, which is actually a really ordinary thing. I don't think a single one of us in this room right now have not known grief. Interesting to think about that Jesus knows that too, right? And in this grief, he's wrestling with the complexities of being both hurt and healer. And the second thing is this. The reality is that we often just do not know what others are carrying in their spirit. And those are just ordinary things in the way in which we all interact with one another. And in this particular passage, Jesus is kind of the main character. And there's a lot going on there that not everybody knows. So now with this fact that we know the news that Jesus had heard about, the rest of this story comes into focus. And as it becomes this story for us, we're going to move through these phases of guided self-reflection. So we're going to begin with Jesus. Begin with Jesus grieving the death of John the Baptist. He arrives on the shore following his float, and he's immediately greeted by the quote-unquote crowds. And so now, pause for a moment. And just how might you respond in this situation if you were Jesus? Right? Floating across the lake, trying to get away. And these people that we now learn later in this passage number more than 5,000. Imagine yourself grieving, which might not be hard to do, but then also being met by a large contingent of people interested in what you have to say and offer. Here's what it says about Jesus. Jesus saw the huge crowd, as he stepped from the boat. And he had compassion on them and healed their sick. So here's the moment I want us to take and just reflect in prayer, whatever that means for you, I don't know. And reflect on the three ways that Jesus acted. He saw, he had compassion, he healed. Just be still in the presence of God, whatever that means for you, and reflect on that.
Amen. What we'll do is we'll get better at it as we go. If you don't spend a lot of time in silent self-reflection, which as a society, we probably don't. You're probably like, why am I hearing all of these things rattling in my head? So we'll keep practicing this way of being still in the presence of Jesus as we go. The next thing that we're going to do is we're going to view this story and ultimately ourselves through the lens of the crowd. Right? We have Jesus. He meets the crowd. And here's how they're referenced in the passage in a couple different sections. First, which we've heard a couple times now, as soon as Jesus heard the news, he left in a boat to a remote area to be alone. But the crowds heard where he was headed and they followed on foot from many towns. Word spread fast, apparently. Jesus saw the huge crowd as he stepped from the boat and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. They're referenced again in verse 20 and 21. They, as in the crowd, all ate as much as they wanted. And afterwards, the disciples picked up 12 baskets of leftovers. About 5,000 men were fed that day in addition to all the women and children. Which just as an aside is why it shouldn't be called Jesus feeds the 5,000. But we'll continue to defeat the patriarchy. Societally, and in church movements specifically, we can become obsessed with size. And I have written that sentence prior to us gathering in this space, which is always a reminder that we don't have great girth in our people, right? Some are not here, but when we gather in this space, we're kind of reminded that we're like, this remnant that says there's got to be another way, there's got to be another way, there's got to be another way, and we keep moving in this way, believing that Jesus might have something to say about that. And so we have this obsession with size. Aaron actually made a a poignant video touching on this just this week, so check out her Instagram or TikTok or Facebook, I don't know. It's on the internet. All right, and, and you can find it there, and it's very creatively done and worth your time, which just means it's something that we're consistently trying to tackle, right? But for our reflective purposes today, what I want us to do is I want us to try to find ourselves in the crowd. The huge crowd, as Matthew references it, is representative of people. Right? Like, I, I just think about that for a second again. The huge crowd is representative of people, and they're actual people making great efforts to find Jesus in this far off corner of the wilderness. Actual people, each one of them walking there to encounter Jesus. And so I want this moment of reflective prayer to just ask the question, like, what do we want or need from Jesus? Why would we walk in such a way to meet him? And I suppose, too, my encouragement is this before I give you that moment of stillness. It's be as honest as you can. Because I think that that's the ordinary represented in the crowd of people here. We as we read this story, don't know why each person of the huge crowd arrived on the opposite end of the lake to find Jesus. 
We know some wanted to be healed, but we don't know a single one of their stories. We don't know a single one of their names, but every single one of those people who walked to the other side of the lake knew why they did or what they were after if they were in fact listening to the deepest longings of their lives, the calling that was coming forth just from the presence of Jesus. And so what are we looking for? do we want from Jesus? What do we need from Jesus? And let's be as ordinarily honest as we can and just be still in the presence of Jesus. So let's try that. Commence praying. Amen. Often find that particular question for reflection might be worth revisiting later. Lastly, let's join the vantage point of the disciples, the other set of characters in this story. An important detail, at least to me, so maybe, maybe not to you, is that we don't know how the disciples arrived on the scene. It's such an interesting thing that's like overlooked in Matthew's account. He's very, very specifically, Jesus was on a boat. Very specifically, the crowds walked from all the other towns. The disciples just appear. All we know is that they approached Jesus that evening. Maybe they trailed Jesus in a different boat. Maybe they shared a boat with Jesus, but were like really quiet. <laughs> He's turning back like, so it was as if Jesus was on his way to be alone. Maybe they walked amongst the crowds, which is actually my favorite theory. Maybe they took their own route. Maybe they realized what was happening and were like, oh, we got to get over there. This is not going to go well. Regardless, we don't know. And that's kind of fun. So here's how they enter the story, though. Verse 15, that evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place. 
They're very good at stating the obvious. It's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, that isn't necessary. You feed them. We have only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here, he said. Then he told the people to sit down on the grass. Jesus took the five loaves and two fish, looked up toward heaven and blessed them. Then breaking the loaves into pieces, he gave the bread to the disciples who distributed it to the people. They all ate as much as they wanted. And afterwards, the disciples picked up 12 baskets of leftovers, which would mean what? One basket for each. Before we spend a few moments in reflective prayer on this one, I want to dispel a few of the ways we traditionally think of the disciples. In these moments, right, like this story here, we can tend to identify them as like bumbling, faithless nitwits, right? Well, like a little bit, we, we all act incredulous and we'll kind of like throw up our hands as if to say like, how can they not get it? So my intention then with the disciples is this, right? and it's often this, is that we would just grant them back their humanity in the story. Like perhaps their initial concern when they approach Jesus about the crowds of people is a heartfelt desire to care for the crowd of people. Perhaps in this moment, they are the ones actually embodying the way of Jesus because like Jesus, they too have seen the crowd, had compassion on them and desire for them to be healed, especially via a good meal and a good night's sleep somewhere safe, not in the remote wilderness. And still following Jesus redirecting them, because apparently the disciples have the kind of relationship with Jesus where they can say, hey, we got to get these people on their way. And Jesus is like, or, and they're like, okay, let's try that then, right? Because Jesus redirects them. And what do they do then? They are the ones who pass out all of the food which just, again, get an image of this. If there's some 10,000 people represented here, that is a lot of genuine human encounter, one after the other. They are doing the work. They are forced, in fact, to see and have compassion and heal in those moments. Like who knows what transpired as they stopped over to this family here and this family's like, we haven't had a chance to talk to Jesus, but so-and-so's been really sick. I'm like, well, let's pray for them right now. Well, here's some food, maybe that's, like the, the real life human things that are actually transpiring in this moment is what I want us to pay attention to, I suppose. Because that's what actually happens in life as well. And so here's the reflection in all of this. Like, where do we see ourselves, our community, our family in the story of the disciples? And maybe to spin it from the other direction is, who have we yet to see? Who do we still need to have compassion for? How do we participate in the holistic healing of the places we occupy? 
And so let's imagine ourselves with the disciples in this journey and let's reflect in prayer for a few moments, wherever that takes you. Let's be still. My hope and my prayer in all of this is that we're able in some way or another to find a bit of ourselves in the story as we look through the lens of Jesus, the disciples and the crowd, and how they all intertwine for that matter. And I trust that as we meandered our way through this together, that you encountered the spirit of Jesus in some meaningful, challenging, encouraging way as we prayed. And that's kind of the, the goal, I suppose, is that. Like, I don't want to be the one to put too fine of a point on this, as if this passage is trying to say one thing to us, because I don't think it is. Instead, what I want to do is I want to read a quote from one of my favorite theologians, Leonardo Boff, which is probably irrelevant to everyone here. I've read this quote before. He's a Brazilian liberation theologian. He's done a lot of work on the Trinity, which has been impactful to me. But he offers a bit of just kind of like a summarized picture of what this could all mean for us. And, and us as in like the Kaleo family or people who follow Jesus collectively in our city. And so here's what Boff writes. I'll try to read this first part slowly because it's a little more cumbersome. Second part. A lot of fire. He says, a model of a truly liberated church, one that could serve as a principle for liberation, can be projected from the mystery of the communion between the three divine persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. He says, this would be a church, a community of brothers and sisters gathered round the Son, sent by the Father of all goodness for the purpose and dynamism with the Spirit of bringing forward deliberately and with full commitment the kingdom of God that is found wherever justice and freedom triumph in the personal and social spheres. Okay, tracking so far? This is part two. He says, such a church, inspired by the communion of the Trinity, would be characterized by a more equitable sharing of sacred power, by dialogue, by openness to all the gifts granted to the members of the community, because each one of us has gifts. 
by the disappearance of all types of discrimination, especially those originating in patriarchalism and racism, by its permanent search for a consensus to be built up through the organized participation of all its members. End quote. To summarize, the embodiment of everything that Jesus is is what God's always intended by the relationality present in Father, Son, and Spirit. And that communion is what we're invited to participate in ourselves. And that participation flows out of the type of community in which there's an equitable sharing of sacred power where there's dialogue, where there's an openness to all of our gifts to be present, where there's the disappearance of discrimination, where we continue to interrogate and dismantle the systems of injustice. And by this ongoing organized participation of all of us, that's always the invitation is to participate, which does not mean like sign up for something all the time. It means just come and be yourself as you show up into a space with other people and then go and be that person out in the world with other people and we just keep doing that. I think sometimes we make it too complicated and yet that sounds really hard at the same time. Thus the tension of all of this and why we cannot put a too fine of a point on it. So what I'd like to do is I'd just like to invite our musicians back up to sing one last song. And as they prepare to do that, I'm going to read for us our communion invitation. We'll receive communion. We've got bread over here that represents the body of Jesus. It was given to us. We have wine over here that represents the blood of Jesus that was shed for us. And so whenever you're ready, Aaron and I'll be up here and you can come up and receive communion. You can rip off a piece of the bread, dip it in the wine, eat it here, eat it at your seat, pray for a while, whatever you want to do as we sing together. But here's the invitation to the table. The table of bread and wine is now ready. It is the table where Jesus is the host and we are his company. It is the table we share with the poor of the world with whom Jesus identified himself. It is the table of communion with the earth in which Jesus became incarnate. It is the table not of the church, but of the Lord. It is made for those who love him and for those who want to love him more. So come to the table, you who have much faith and you who have little. You who have been here often and you who have not been here long. You who have tried to follow Jesus and you who have failed, come. Because it is Jesus who invites you. And it is his will that those who want him should meet him here. For more resources or information about Kaleo, please visit our website at kaleophx.com or follow us on social media. If this episode has been helpful to you, let us know or share it with someone you know.